0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the HR Leaders Podcast, the show where we explore the future of work with industry experts and HR executives and the world's leading global brands. Today, we have a special guest on the show, a fellow LinkedIn live streamer as well. We're joined by Dave Buzanko, who's an entrepreneur, leadership speaker, and growth mindset strategist. Welcome to the show, Dave. How are you?
1: I am doing great. Thank you for having me,
0: Chris. Um, Dave, before we jump in, tell everyone a bit about yourself personally and your journey to to where we are today.
1: Yeah. So, you know, um, much like anybody else who ever went to business school 30 years ago, I got my start uh, after uh, college and and went out and started a business career, started my own company. And, And what I learned really quickly are there's some things that they teach you in business school about resiliency, and there's some things that they definitely don't. And um, what I found was that if you don't pay attention to the the foundation of resiliency in business, um, bad things are going to happen. If you don't know how to handle stress and you're not taking care of yourself, uh, bad things can happen to good people. And in my case, uh, that started with a heart scare at 40. It's something that I totally didn't see coming. Uh, And looking back now, I can absolutely see why it happened. And I went on this journey for the next 13 years of trying to understand how to move from this burned out um, position to being resilient. And one of the things that I like to share with uh, the the groups of people that I talk to is that, you know I've got a story of working with as a solopreneur with some of Canada's largest retailers, supplying them and understanding uh, what the business world is all about. But then I got sabotaged by one of those retailers, by a buyer inside the organization. And that caused me to not only be inactive. In other words, I didn't move forward. I wasn't agile as a business leader. I got stuck. And not only did I get stuck in my business life, but then because I wasn't taking care of myself personally, that manifested itself in the health crisis as well. And I created my own perfect little entrepreneurial perfect storm. After that episode, I did kind of what most people do when I was in the ER. um, And I'm going to make this very long story short for you today. No, please do.
0: What What were the signs, by the way? Just for everyone.
1: Oh, you yeah. know what? There used to be this commercial from the Heart and Stroke uh, Association in Canada. And it said, if you had any one of these seven symptoms, you could be having a heart attack. And and at the time I was 40, and my wife and I would sort of sit there and watch this commercial and going, come on, I've had all those things today. Like, this is just normal life. What are you talking about? And we would dismiss it. Mm. And, and actually, I was driving home from one of my son's hockey games. And I'd had this really uncomfortable chest pain and a radiating pain down the side of my arm, like for the last three hours. And no. I'm like, okay. Like this isn't good during the game. I'm, I'm getting all worked up as a hockey parent does getting all worked up watching the game. Then on the way home, same thing. And I dropped, uh, I dropped my son's friends off and I, I dropped my son off. And I said to my wife, I'm just going to drive over to the hospital. I think there's something wrong and totally in denial. Now what I found out was if I was actually having a full on blown heart attack, um, there's no way I could have made that drive, but what I was induced, what I was having was an induced stress attack and, I had so many risk factors that were pointing in the wrong direction, including a family history of uh, high cholesterol that uh, the doctor said, it's not a matter of if, but when you're going to have a heart attack, all the markers really? are pointing in the wrong direction. So I, he goes, I'm going to give you two choices. You can either go on heart and cholesterol medication for the rest of your life or you can choose to lose the weight and get in shape you know i heard the word choice so what that meant was i was going to do nothing so how, how out of shape was you oh so i was 50 pounds overweight i was 220 pounds and like i'm six feet tall so i, I hid the weight well the one thing that people tell me the most that they saw in the pictures if i if shared pictures today i could have showed you um was i had i used to have this big double chin and when i crossed my first ironman finish line um as the story goes on uh, about five years later, that was completely gone. As a matter of fact, one of my relatives um, said, Hey, who's Skeletor? And and that was that was the reference that that I had lost all the way to my face. That's yeah. where people could see. That's why you notice um, it, don't you? When you, yeah. you?
0: when you notice it around the face. Yeah. yeah.
1: So so what happened was, you know, as I was going through this this denial, um, when I heard that I hadn't had a heart attack, and I didn't want to go on pills. And I found exercise and diet really frustrating. I just did nothing for about two more months until the symptoms started coming back. And that's when I decided to go for a walk. I, I just made this conscious decision. I had this vision for myself that I did want to see my daughter get married and, and my son grow up. And I've, you know, as, as most people who have a heart scare do, it's the cliche, I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. But you have that vision. You say, okay, what am I going to do? And I thought, okay, well, if I've got to take care of my heart, I think if I go for a, a run today, that this will be a good thing. So I, I remember coming home from the uh, the grocery store with my wife, and I said, "I'm just I'm just going to go for a little run. I want to sweat in a good way today, uh, not because I walked up a flight of stairs." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, the funny story was, I, I went out into the driveway, and uh, I, I had put on an old pair of running shoes and my shorts. And my next door neighbor is a firefighter. His name is Kyle. He's a fantastic guy. And as I come out, we have this great relationship where we tease each other all the time. And I come out with my shorts, and he looks at me and goes, Dave, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I says, Kyle, David. I'm going for a run today. And he goes, what? And he goes, I'm going for a run. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. It's my day off. If you die of a heart attack, don't come calling me. And and let's see, we have this sort of fun relationship with each other, but but – you know, it wasn't in my persona. It wasn't in my identity to be the type of person who goes for a run every day. So this seemed out of character to him, but it was also funny to him. And I actually ran about one block, doubled over, grabbed my legs and went, oh, I just my, my lungs were on fire. Um, I, I just couldn't believe how out of shape I actually was. Like I was in so much denial because I was a high school athlete. I was a college athlete. What happened? You know, I felt like nothing had digressed and and, and I had yeah. immensely. I was just in, in complete denial as most people are. That one decision to go out and start something positive, um, I ended up saying, well, I can't go back home because Kyle's probably still in his driveway and I never heard the end of it. So <laughs> I got to finish this 5K thing, right? So I went out and I, I sort of walk and ran to a telephone pole and what started out as I would run to a telephone pole, walk, run, walk. Within three weeks, I was running 5K. But the major thing that I did when I got home was I started a journal. And I just said, I don't want to feel like this again. I know this is going to be painful, and I started recording how I felt. And after, you know, I, I remember the, the second or third week, it was like I just want to walk downstairs again because I hurt more going downstairs than it <laughs> did going up. And but but again, I, I was I was recording my feelings, and because I was just getting this habit of, of starting a journal. I didn't realize it. And and so I'll take this f- forward. Uh, I sort of ran for three years. I didn't take a day off. I got in my head that I was going to do this thing, that I needed to do this thing. This was my medicine. I was going to go out and run every day. And I could become like most successful business people. I have an A-type personality, dog on a bone. I, I get into things and I just keep going. I, I, I sat back and asked myself, boy, it, right through my 20s and 30s, I joined gyms and I had personal trainers, but I could never sort of keep it going, what, what changed? And I started asking myself, you know, what have I done differently this time around that caused me to be sustainable? What was my secret sauce that is allowing me to get up and do this thing that I don't necessarily want to do every day? And, and I sort of boiled that down into vision, identity, and social proof. Those are sort of the three keys um, that I take away for how I became self-motivated, but it's, I, I've since learned it's, it's firmly grounded in, in science. And in science, they talk about uh, social incentives, immediate incentives, and uh, a sense of progress when you're looking at long-term goals. How do you bring that into your immediate uh, reward system? So, you know, I've been learning along the way. I've developed this idea, this mentality that I've got to be a lifelong learner. But uh, very, very funny story. I was literally out running one day, uh, and I ran into a gentleman, an older gentleman on his bicycle, and he had this ratty old Ironman t-shirt on. And being a talkative guy and he was waiting at the top of the hill his wife was climbing the hill behind him on her bike i said hey you've really done that iron man thing and he spent five minutes with me that changed my life he said dave i used to be like you you know goes, i started running around the time i turned 40 because of health reasons um but he said i re- quickly realized that, that if i ever got injured running all this great stuff would stop so he said i discovered the sport of triathlon where there's two non-impact sports so if I ever got hurt running, I could still swim or I could still bike. and I could still keep it going. And while that made sense to me, I thought, well, good for you. I'll never be a triathlete. That's, that's dumb. And, 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 you know, I'm going to go on my way and run again. Fast forward uh, about four months. It's now November. I've got a treadmill. I'm running indoors. It was a crappy November day outside. And it happened to be the day that the Iron, Ironman World Champions were being broadcast on TV. So I'm sitting there on my, my treadmill. And uh, I'm flipping through the channels and sure enough, the Ironman comes on. So I see this guy running on TV and I'm running on my treadmill. I'm thinking really, he's going for a run. How hard can that be? I can run, he can run. (laughs) He did a little bike ride. I've ridden a bike before and he did a little swim. Well, I've swam before I had a pool and a a boat. I never drowned. How hard can it possibly be? So with that naive perspective, I I literally got off the treadmill and signed up for the first Ironman closest to me. Now at this point, I didn't know i i, I sorry so i didn't, didn't know anything. you
0: didn't think it was a good idea to warm up to it you just went straight oh, from zero I, to a hundred because iron I, Man's I, like the elite you didn't do like a normal marathon first and then progress to iron man
1: <laughs> you would not believe the number of professional coaches who told me that you know good luck we'll see you when you're injured i got all sorts of negative feedback but the funny story was like I, again because i was naive i did something else that, that i often tell people put your money where your mouth is like i literally got off the treadmill and I signed up for um, Ironman to 70.3. I, I had no idea what 70.3 meant, but it was the closest Ironman thing to me. So I signed up for it. I didn't have a bike. I didn't know I didn't know how to swim. I thought I'll, I'll figure it out, right? And um, so I called my wife downstairs. And, and now to sign up for the Ironman was $600, okay? And then you got to sign up to stay at the host resort. That's three nights at an a exclusive resort. There's $1,000. So I called my wife into the office and I says, hey, Robin, come see what I just did. Now, here I am, all sweaty from getting off the treadmill. I turn my laptop you, around, yeah. now, and I says, I says, I'm going to be an Ironman. And she says, you're going to be a what? And I said, I'm going to be an Ironman. And she looked at me, and she looked at the computer. She went, you're an idiot. But if I get to go to Deerhurst for the weekend, I'm in. And, <laughs> and so I tell, when I tell that story, the funny part is I had built three years up of developing the identity of the type of person who does endurance sports. If I didn't have that three-year background and I just said, hey, I'm going to do an Ironman, she would have went, you're crazy. Get your money back. Why would you even think of doing such a thing? But a big part of being able to move forward and and, and feeling like you're taking control of your life again is starting to assume the identity of the type of person that you want to be. Uh, James Clear, I don't know if you've read his book, Atomic Habits, talks about assuming the identity of the type of person you aspire to be. That's how you start forming small daily habits. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, that's exactly what I did is I built this history up of the being the type of person who would do these things. So that spurred another journey. And, and, you know, uh, there's so many stories of being hit by a car um, on my bike that uh, <laughs> you name it. I've gone through, I, yeah. A guy died beside me in my first Ironman race in Louisville.
0: That point then before we move on, you talk about three key lessons that you took away from right. the, the Ironman experience. So you outline them for everyone. Cause I think they're pretty important. Right. And we can apply those to
1: anything, not just an Ironman. Absolutely. And that's that's the big uh, transformation here of mindset is that what I learned in the Ironman, I really tried to take back and say, how can I apply this to my personal and business life? Uh, Because there there are life lessons to be learned here. So the first the first Ironman taught me that anything is possible. And that's good or bad. I mean, um, you can look at all the situations that happen in your life, and depending on how prepared you are, any eventuality is possible. Uh, the second Ironman that I did taught me that the better prepared you are, the better outcome you're going to have. The, the idea was when I finished my first Ironman, I crossed the finish line. And, and what I was hoping for was I was hoping to feel happy um, in my business career. Uh, and I can talk a little bit about that. I, I experienced epic failure because I had been sabotaged by one of my companies, one of my customers from the inside. And and that caused me to be stuck. And I was just searching for this feeling of happiness. You know, I was I was overweight. I, my business was not doing well, and I felt like a failure. And, and I thought, if I do this one thing that I can control, this is one thing that I can control. If I'm able to finish this, then I'll feel happy. And immediately when I crossed the finish line, I turned around and the immediate thought in my head was, hmm, 13 hours and 57 minutes, eh? How can I do that faster? Within five seconds, I had changed. I had gone from being you know happy to, or looking at success and being, thinking that would be happiness, to That's short term pleasure crossing the finish line with short term pleasure. And now I've just readjusted the goals for where happiness is going to be and, and where I think I can take my life. I said, okay, well, how can I go from 14 hours to, say, 10 and a half hours? Because if I want to get to Hawaii, which is sort of the ultimate goal of every Ironman, you want to go to Hawaii to the world championships as an age group athlete qualify and go and have that experience. I thought if I'm going to do that, I've got to, you know, knock two and a half hours off that time. I don't have more time to train. I've got to work full time. I've got a young family. Like, how is that going to happen? And and but but when you have that attitude of I can't, you create this self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say, how can I do this? All of a sudden you break the problem down and you know opportunities start to present themselves. So I realized I'm a terrible swimmer and I could spend lots of time trying to be better. It's not going to work. It's not going to improve. Um, and even if it improved five minutes, I'm only in the water for like an hour and 20 minutes, but I'm on the bike for, you know, this last ride was eight hours. Shoot. I should be on the bike for six or less. So I can make a lot of time on the bike and the run. If I attack the run a little bit differently, I can maybe shave that from five hours down to to four hours. And and sure enough, you do the math and go, wait a minute, that could be 10 and a half hours. That could punch my ticket to Hawaii. If I go to the next race, do 10 and a half hours. So I learned to be better prepared And the ironic part of that was uh, my second Ironman was in Cozumel, Mexico, and everything was going according to plan on race day. I had trained for the race. I had trained to hit that time. Um, I changed my training to really serve my ego versus my long-term health and happiness, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But on race day, I was expecting to uh, get all my sodium from pretzels on the race course, on the run course. Ah, uh, you need to keep your body. You need to keep these sodium levels it's in your body from uh, cramping, right? Or done... cramping exactly severe muscle cramping. And yeah. and unfortunately, this this rainstorm came through the run course, and the kids who were manning the aid stations who were putting the pretzels into these little Gatorade cups. <laughs> Didn't have the, the hindsight to go, we should probably throw those ones out that are floating and put new ones in. So the, oh, I moved lovely. to the station, and, and I, you're literally on a razor's edge at this point. Your body at this point in an Ironman, uh, you're on the pro, the point where you make one mistake, your body starts shutting down. Organs start shutting down. Like, it, it gets nasty. Again, people die during these races. So it was a really strange sensation. But I had to make a decision. I'm looking at this cup of, of floating pretzels going, um, am I actually going to – try to eat that without throwing up or can i just drink coca-cola which has got the sodium in it and it's got some simple sugars in it which am i going to do and i thought okay i'm gonna do the coca-cola and i started off to the next aid station you sort of mark your your distances by aid stations and about halfway away from in between each aid station i picked my right foot up and my my right foot cramped like this and i immediately slammed it down on the ground I tried to lift it up again, and, and my body was – my, my, my um, muscles were all starting to cramp. My hamstring went sideways. My, my calf just seized up. And But thankfully, I had read about this in a book, but I had never experienced it personally. And when I was going through this experience, I had brought sodium with me, these salt tablets. And only then did I start taking them. And I was able to pop a couple of salt tablets. I was prepared. I had a little bit of Coke, a little bit of water in my run flasks. And I was able to keep moving forward. I had learned how painful it was in Ironman Louisville when you make mistakes in life and you stop moving forward, how difficult it is to regain that momentum. So I committed myself to keep moving forward. After taking those sodium tablets, I ended up doing the race, not in 10 and a half hours, but 10 hours and 27 minutes. It actually took an hour onto my race. But the most amazing thing happened. A, I was able to finish the race because I felt prepared B, I wouldn't have gone to Kona anyway because as an amateur, um, there were some German athletes who showed up who I'm pretty sure were ex-Olympians in my age group and (laughs) posted times of nine hours because they also, like as an amateur, you have no idea who's showing up on race day. You can't control that. Like business, you can't control who your competitors are going to be. You know a great competitor might show up and disrupt the, the whole system that's exactly what happened
0: was but that is would that be lesson the lesson freedom manage your expectations
1: <laughs> <depending> <laughs> your expectations and and so but the the, the the real for me um something really special happened when i was crossing the finish line in cozumel i give my daughter my my gopro on a red mission hockey stick without the blade that's what i call a canadian selfie stick i told them that i was going to be crossing the finish line my target time was 10 and a half hours i was it was now almost an hour late um, have no idea where my family is, but I felt so good that I was actually finishing the race. I, my my sodium that I was taking was allowing me to, 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 to get my muscles under control. Running down the red carpet line, or red the red carpet, pitch dark, lights, make fun lights in your eyes. I'm high in the crowd, and as I run by, I didn't even see her. My daughter has captured this whole moment on video, and if you go to my uh, website, you can see that. My finisher's picture, my official finisher's picture crossing the finish line is me with my hand up in in the air and my daughter right above my head. Like you could not have pictured it better. Really? Always reminds me that your kids are watching you, right? They're going to grow up to be just like you. So be the person that you hope they will be. And as a leader, you know, I talk about leadership all the time. I believe that leadership starts at home. And that can sound a little bit preachy, but your kids are going to pick up your behaviors. If you don't value your health, if you don't value the things that are going to make you resilient in life, neither will they. If you don't make it a priority, neither do they. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm perfect or that my kids are going to be perfect. I've got this really interesting vision that one day every parent will be able to sit down with their kids at the kitchen table and have informed and intelligent conversations about diet, exercise and mental health. Because we're not having those conversations today in most homes. For me, that's a big, big piece of the puzzle. So my kids know from our conversations, they know how many grams of sugar they should have a day. They know how to read a nutrition label on a food box. They know what real food looks like. Do they still buy crappy food? Yes. But at least they know how to make an informed choice. Going back to your your,
0: your original point when we first started to show, my, my form of burnout came in in the form of uh, anxiety attacks, panic mm-hmm. attacks because I was working myself so hard that you know my body just kind of had to, I stopped exercising, wasn't eating healthy, didn't get much sleep and I'd always suffered from anxiety as a kid anyway. Mm-hmm. So this now just heightened it to a whole new level where I was having heart palpitations. I couldn't leave my house. I was you know, calling up Shane, my business partner, to come to the office. And I was hiding it from my family, from my wife, from everyone else. I was embarrassed of it. And it was because I was just working so hard to try and be this person, be successful, not let my family, friends down. You know? Obviously, I quit my job and started this business. It was very stressful and probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. And I paid the price. Like what you said, for me, when I'm exercising, eating well, sleeping, that's
1: my medicine. So that's the funny thing the the, the science says, the research shows that 97% of North Americans have suboptimal heart health. That came out of the American Heart Stroke Association. And whenever I do a talk, I try to validate that statistic. So I'll ask people in the room, I'll say, put your hand up if you do any form of exercise. I don't care what it is, playing volleyball, whatever it is, you think you're exercising, put your hand up if you do that one day a week. And, you know, maybe 50% of the room put their hands up. And then I say, okay, keep your hands up if you do something three days a week. And most of the hands come down and I say, okay, anybody who does something every day of the week, keep your hand up. And I know that means that you're a runner because that's usually only runners who do that. Literally, there might be one or two people out of a room with 250 people with their hands still up. The the funny thing for me, Chris, is is I've gone through this experience where I had this perfect storm and business failure. Um, My health was not good, It, it did not contribute to looking at the last 13 years and going, what the hell happened? How, how did I go from that very unhealthy person, that, that very stressed out person to making stress my friend and, and creating a foundation of resiliency and wellness? And that's what I find that a lot of business leaders ask me. They say, Dave, I hate diet and exercise. I have no motivation to get started. Um, my, my spouse and my doctor are, are after me to, to, to change my behaviors. But there are just so many challenges that I face. Everybody, if they're a very successful business person, typically people are Often buying them drinks, buying them food because they're trying to get into their rolodex. Um, you know, it's it's a very very difficult situation. So so how do you do something? How do you do something that you don't want to do? I know a lot of successful leaders are are really driven to be successful, but but how do you do the things that you don't want to do? And that's where I step in and go, okay, how do you do that? Well, you know, for me, um, I often say to people, just you know, finish this sentence for me. If your heart stops beating, you are dead. Right, so health is your foundation of resiliency and wellness. If you're not taking care of your health, I hate to be that blunt, but you've got to take care of your heart first. On my journey, what I learned was that I was out there trying to take care of my heart and while I was building a very strong heart, at the same time my father was dying from Alzheimer's and dementia. And I got to go through that experience with him and watch him suffer. And what I learned from his neurologists were that um, Alzheimer's and dementia, familiar Alzheimer's and dementia, which means that you've got the genetics, you're going to have this disease no matter what, typically gonna kill you in your 40s, is less than 0.001% globally. The other 99.999% of Alzheimer's dementia cases, even though you may have been predisposed with the genetics, what is fueling those genetics is your lifestyle. You can, through exercise, primarily create new brain cells. So when I work out today, people say, well, why do you still do it,
0: It builds it and also creates new connections,
1: right? It's creating new connections in the hippocampus, right? Yeah. So that is where dementia and Alzheimer's destroy your brain. So my theory is like a marathon, if I've destroyed my brain for the first 45 years of my life and only in the last say five to seven years have I really understood what's going on, now I'm trying to build new brain cells every day and maybe I can outrun the bad stuff that I've done. I mean, there's no guarantees in life, but I, I would rather risk being healthy and happy as a consequence and, and fighting through a disease that if, if that becomes my reality, being unprepared for it and sick. And and it all boils down to resiliency. It all has a knock-on
0: effect. So if I find that I start exercising, I automatically start eating better because I'm exercising. And because I'm exercising, I sleep better because I'm, I'm tired. And then all of a sudden I'm I'm more productive at work now and I start making more money at work and I'm more productive. And it's just like a, but then the the vice versa, it's just as with one of those things goes, everything else goes along with it at the same time.
1: So what you just mentioned is a common downfall for a lot of people who think in terms of what they think they know about exercise. They think that because I exercise, that allows me to go out and eat more because I've I've earned the calories (laughs) and and that's and that's going to make me sleep. You know, so we've sort of got this this nutrition thing a little bit backwards. So I like to talk to people and there's some stepping stones about uh, health and wellness that I've learned as an Ironman athlete. Uh, and the first and most important thing is rest and recovery. So I talk about sleep. I know that think about any any high-performing athlete around the globe. They're never at peak performance 12 months out of the year. They they go into these peak performance cycles. It's called periodized training, and then they come out of it. They go into it, and they come out of it. And, and that's how they stay healthy and, and uninjured, hopefully. Um, so that starts with rest and recovery. So planned into – like I like structure. That's why I think I love the Ironman is because it's it's training 12 months out of the year. Um, but every week is structured. I do. I never wake up and go, what am I going to do today? What exercise will I do? Um, my wife, who loves to do HIIT workouts, who will never do a triathlon in her life, um, she's always sort of in this panic. mode. Well, I, I did legs yesterday, so what am I going to do today? And I'm like, I don't even worry about that because I know seven days a week, every month, every year, what every week, every weekday looks like. Um, it's just a matter of volume. How much volume am I applying and at what heart rate am I going to train at? I used to train to improve sport and performance and push my lactate threshold up, which just simply means you're working harder to get onto Mm -hmm. the podium. You're trying to be faster. And then I realized that by doing that, I was getting my body out of the benefit zone for those BDNFs, those brain derived neurotrophic factors. That's not not what the outcome was supposed to be, right? The outcome was to have a happy, healthy life at 80. So just like my father, who was an athlete his entire life, everybody thought he was bulletproof. And what he ended up having was a really strong heart that made him live longer in a nursing home, which was a horrible outcome. So my my perspective now is everything that I do is to serve my my heart and my mind, and I dial it back. Right? Mm-hmm. There are days when I feel like, man, I've just got the energy and I going to give it, and I go, no, nope. dial it back. Have every any workout that doesn't have purpose serves no purpose. Yeah. That was a that was I did a great interview with Craig Alexander. He's a three-time Ironman world champion, and he said to me, Dave. A workout without purpose has no purpose. You've got to be disciplined in what you do every day, in work. It's same at work, ex- it's the
0: Same thing, right? Because I always, yeah. uh, whenever I look at my tasks for the day or what I've got on my in my diary, I always ask myself the question. Is this getting me close to achieving
1: my goals? Habits become habits when they become automatic. You have to have that consistency in your life and you have to make them obvious and they become automatic. You touched on something really interesting that I'm just going to turn around for a second. Um, one of the things that that I learned about when it comes to goal setting and, and to doing the right things every day is that, Quite often, these these visionary goals that we have for what what, I, what, what do I want my life to look like? Can I can't actually paint that picture 20 or 30 years from now. That's such a distant goal that many people have a tough time wrapping their heads around it on a day-to-day basis. It's just more, it's easier to do things that are instantly gratifying. And that's when we tend to make poor choices. I created this, this journal here, and it's something that I've been using. I, I, I talk about it all the time. Um, I used to have it on my website. I might put it back up again. Uh, it's something that I don't sell, but it's it's I call it 365 days of growth, and this is based in the tenets of science and what I've learned. You know what I do here. There, there's three things that this journal helps me do. First of all, my vision is crystal clear on the front of this journal. What it is that I'm trying to accomplish, why I'm doing what I do every day. But this is also a piece of social proof that I talk to my wife about. It sits on my desk. I talk to my kids about what my goals are this year, what I'm trying to achieve, just like an Iron Man sits. It's holding down you accountable. It <laughs> holds me accountable. So there's my social proof to my family that this is what I'm aspiring to do this year. But then the immediate gratification in, in science, they say that you need to have um, that immediate gratification to feel like you know, this is making a difference. So the immediate gratification, I've got check marks on here. When I exercise, I check it off, I get that dopamine release. Um, Also, a sense of feeling of progress. Uh, I've got winning streaks on the side, how many days in a row have I had a good night's sleep? How many days in a row have I um, been able to curb mindless eating? Uh, How many days in a row have I exercised? And when I do that, This this journal keeps me accountable. So I know a lot of people like to use technology. Uh, I used to use MyFitnessPal. You know, I certainly use my polar heart rate monitors, my polar training watches and whatnot. But I got to tell you something. If I were to be hit by a car tomorrow, my kids aren't going into MyFitnessPal to look at what my journey was all about. That history is lost. So one thing that your listeners might be interested in thinking about is going back to your analogy of sports, not everybody played sports and not everybody is going to play sports. So how does that person, one of the, the recent statistics that I read about the gig economy is that in North America, 57 million people are part of the gig economy. That's one third of working adults. And they assume that that's going to be up to 50% in the next coming two or three years. For somebody who went to business school and, and wasn't taught about being resilient and, and then building a foundation of resiliency and ha- and how important having your health and how important to look at business failure as a part of the learning process and and having a lifelong learning strategy. These things weren't taught in business school. OK, and my son just graduated from university. They didn't. I've got his book here on my desk specifically because I wanted to look and see if they have any section here on resiliency and failure. No, they talk about nothing but success. We know people are going to fail. So why don't we teach people about how, what are your yeah. strategies for dealing with failure? Right. Mm. And so that's the part that gets to me. And, and when I think about these folks out there um, who are part of the gig economy, they didn't even go to business school. My, my my point is this, I think that, that we have a society of people who are being forced into the gig economy, not because they wanna be there. Think about the 40 year old who who's made redundant because the company doesn't wanna pay for the healthcare benefits that they know are coming down the road, So they say, we're going to let you go, but we're going to hire you back. We'll pay you a couple of dollars premium on what you were making before, but we're not carrying your health care costs anymore. And I think this is a reaction. We see this happening in Canada, at least all over the place. I see it in the States. And I think it's a reaction to companies going, we can't bear the cost and be a sustainable, viable organization of carrying unhealthy people. Why did, you know, uh, U-Haul last week say that we're going to stop hiring people who smoke? So they put wow. a press release and they said if you smoke or vape, you're no longer gonna be hired at U-Haul. Whoa. And I thought, wow, that's kind of wow. That like I was very surprised. I thought that was being uh, bias. Bias, thank you. And 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 apparently they've been doing it for years, and companies have been doing it for years, and, and nobody's taken the court over it. And it, it becomes a question of is smoking a disability, and like there's a whole HR issue with that. But the point being, companies are asking themselves. Why should I carry the cost of your poor choices with health and your own personal resiliency when I know that I can go to the open market just like a, a professional sports team? I can play the market. I can bring in a contract worker for a year who I don't have to pay any health care costs to. Yeah, I can pay a little bit more for the next year. I'll get what I need and, and off they go. I think Corn Ferry did a study recently and they said even a C-suite executive has a lifespan of five years or less. So even like, there's no more golden handshake. There's no more 30 year history with a company. That doesn't exist
0: anymore. You're right. It doesn't yeah. exist.
1: So, mm-hmm. so how do these people prepare themselves emotionally and physically and mentally to deal with being a part of the gig economy? Even better. Let's say you're successful as a contractor and then you do a month's worth of work. And then the vendor dis- or the contractor dis- or the, the company you're working for decides not to pay you. Ooh, didn't see that coming. Cash flow is probably, as you know, as an entrepreneur, one of the yeah. chasing and following money is probably one of the most difficult, stressful yeah. things that you have to do. And how many of these people just, working take, just, take,
0: just take credit card payments, you'll be fine.
1: <laughs> well, that's the thing today with, with Uber and whatnot, they've simplified um, <laughs> yeah. the, the payment process. But exactly, but yeah, not everybody wants to be an Uber driver.
0: No, no, right? yeah, right? I know. I'm just joking. Yeah,
1: yeah I know, yeah. I know. But but my, my point is real there, there are so no. many people who are working in jobs where they think, okay, I've got these skills. And they're not being an Uber driver. I've got the skill. And if I'm going to be a consultant because I got to let go, well, I've got to learn all these entrepreneurial skills. But the one thing they never teach you is how to be resilient in the face of failure, how to be resilient in, in not pissing people off yeah. and actually chasing money. There is a really strong balance there. And there's a point where being too resilient can be a bad thing as well. Yes. That, yeah, you can you can actually go, you know, you. Um, you, when you put your head down and say, I'm going to hit this target regardless,
0: exactly, that
1: means that you really don't have an iterative process for th- when things go sideways. That's actually what happened to me in my business experience when I got sabotaged from the inside from my customer. Um, and and the, the long and short of it was uh, they lied to us. Uh, they did some things internally um, that, that caused us to hold on to almost a half a million dollars of inventory that, that I had to sit on for over a year. And I became paralyzed. I said, I, I've, I, I've got, to, they've got they're going to buy this, so if I just do what they're asking me to do, eventually they'll take the inventory, and I didn't pick my head up and look around. That's where being too resilient and being too focused on one goal and not having an iterative process can be very detrimental. You've got to be able to recognize the signs and go, okay, wait a minute. There's a problem here. What's my iterative process to solve this problem? And while we started out wanting to hit here, we may end up going over here at the end of the day, the goal is to be an infinite player. As Simon Sinek would call it an infinite player in the game versus a finite player. Finite players go to business because they've got their heads down and they don't see what's happening around them. Infinite players live to play another day.
0: Yeah. So we right? recap, recap what we've been talking about. We're going to, <laughs> we, we could have a, like, another podcast around the topic, but <laughs> I, I told think, you <laughs> uh, the key takeaways. You're talking about one is obviously wellness, secondly, self-motivation and then obviously personal growth, which is kind of what yeah. we've been talking about now. And, uh, um, fail fast
1: is like you like you say
0: pivot, keep moving forwards towards your goals.
1: Going back to helping people in your audience today, take away from this. Go back into your life, think about things when when times are tough, and how did you move through that tough time and and still manage to be here today? It may have seemed like it was impossible at the time, yeah, impossible, and and mm. yet here you are. Um, somebody once said to me, you know, my my kid can't tie their shoelaces up. And, and somebody else said, I've never seen a 25 year old able bodied who couldn't tie up their shoes. It will happen eventually. You have to just let them sort through it. That's part of the learning process. But if you do it for them, it's going to take them longer and longer and longer to figure it out. Parting piece of advice, Dave? My, my big thing for everybody is build that foundation of wellness. And if you have any questions about that, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to share. Um, I do a live stream every Tuesday at noon. It's coming up in uh, just under an hour where I invite people to, to dig deep on these questions. I know we can't do these in one webinar or one, one live no. stream, but it's an no. ongoing conversation. And if you really want to get value out of LinkedIn, start asking questions, asking better questions and demanding better answers for yourself and from others. Ask better questions from the experts. Don't settle on what other people are doing. Get the facts. I've always said in order to make the best possible choices for your life, you've got to have all the facts. So get out and get the best facts that you can and stand up, get out of your comfort zone, and, and start leaving great comments and asking great questions on LinkedIn. I think that's yeah. a great starting point.
0: Also, if you if you want to set your goals and post them on LinkedIn, tag us in. Yeah, we'll, absolutely. Accountable. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Well, like, thanks All again for right. the time to join us. Thank you, Chris. Actually, if you on LinkedIn, if you're not already subscribed, head over to hrdleaders.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe on your favorite platform. That way you'll never miss an episode. Apart from that, enjoy the rest of your day and I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow. See you later, Dave.
1: Thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody.